Amen. Turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. Jonah 4, I'm actually going to begin this morning in Jonah 3, verse 10, and read through the end of the book as we complete our series here in the book of Jonah. I'm going to ask that you would stand as we hear God's Word together. This is God's living and active Word. Let's hear it together. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, And made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray together. Father, as we have heard your word, as we are confronted with the truth, Lord, I I do praise you that Christ is indeed interceding right now for sinners. That he has given life, new life, to many of us here in this room today. And we praise you, Lord, for that. We praise you for the new lives that have been even brought into this world, children, over the, number, over the last number of months. See the many children out here this morning. 
We praise you for all these little ones and these lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would give them a second birth. A second birth. A birth from above. That they would come to taste and see that you are good. Lord, even here on this Mother's Day, we praise you for the moms, for those who nurture life, for those who spend time with their children and teaching them and instructing them and disciplining them. We thank you for the moms here who nurture life even within the church through teaching and instructing and encouraging and bringing meals and all sorts of ways that we see your body at work. We praise you for even as we remember that our Savior was born of a woman. And even as we think of life and nurturing life, we do, Lord, give you thanks. We give you thanks for even what appears to be movements towards ending the Roe v. Wade decision down in the States. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would make it so. That you would give these justices courage to do what is right that the lives of these unborn would be protected. And as we think here of our own country, a country that we, we have no limits, no laws banning abortion, we ask, Lord, that you would show mercy upon us, that you would get a hold of those who are in positions of power and influence, that there would be a stop to this madness. Lord, you can do it. You can raise the dead so you can do this, and we ask that you would please do that. We do pray for the churches around this region and for the continued advance of the gospel. We think of Grace Church in Cochrane. We pray for the pastors there and the, and the people there, that you would continue to build them up and encourage them, even this morning as they hear the word together. And pray for pastors in general to be encouraged for those who are laboring in the ministry of the Word. I thank you, Lord, for this particular church, for these particular people who are a joy to shepherd. Lord, as we look out, out the doors, as we look at the world around us, we see that there is truly moral confusion moral rebellion. And so we ask that your spirit would get a hold of these people. And we pray in particular for those who are immersed in the LGBTQ community, those who are immersed in industries that do harm and injustice, abortion industries, trafficking industries, that you would get a hold of these people and that there would be many more monuments of your grace, even that would walk through these doors. We pray, Lord, for those in our midst who are suffering illnesses. We thank you once again for continuing to protect uh, many of us many, in many ways that we don't even know. We pray for continued healing for Katie and for Glenn and for others who are suffering with chronic illness, chronic depression. We pray, Lord, that you would give them hope and endurance turn their eyes upon Jesus. 
turn our eyes upon Jesus. We pray, Lord, even as we saw last week, for an awakening and a revival among us here today, for your people here in this city, and even for many who do not currently bow the knee to Christ, that they would do so. We pray that we would have to clear out this room of pews and make extra room for chairs and all sorts of things because people are longing to hear the word. And that you would raise up laborers even for the harvest. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would cause us to see your goodness and your grace, your exceedingly deep and wide compassion for sinners. And that you would transform us from one degree of glory to another as we behold Christ, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I was talking with my uh, mom yesterday, and uh, she, she said to me, Jonah 4 doesn't really seem like much of a Mother's Day sermon. And I kind of jokingly said to her, well, you know, don't moms get angry? That's, that's kind of the only Mother's Day thing. Well, we do see the pervasive attitude of Jonah here. It's a surprising attitude, isn't it? Jonah's anger. Jonah's anger. And anger is one of those ugly responses. And we, we all of us, we all know it far too well. We know it better than we want to know it. Because we've all been angry. Of course, there are things to be angry about. There is a righteous kind of anger. Be angry and do not sin, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. But most often, our anger is unrighteous. It's unwarranted anger that stems from our own sense of entitlement to something. We think we deserve it. We have a right to it. And therefore, when someone gets in the way of that, boom, we're angry. I think if we're honest, we've all been more angry than we would like to admit I think the last two years has really exposed that. I said to Julie on the way in here, uh, I've enjoyed preaching through the book of Jonah, but Jonah 4 has been the hardest passage for me personally. It's exposed my own sense of entitlement, my own tendencies to anger and impatience, how far apart my heart is from God's. That's really what God is exposing to Jonah here in Jonah chapter 4. You see, the ability for us to be angry resides in us all. And don't kid yourself. Anger has a lot of different faces. It's got a lot of different faces. And we see that here with Jonah. Anger can manifest itself with an angry prayer to God, accusing him of doing wrong, which we're going to see here. Sometimes, though, our anger expresses itself in pouting, in isolation, like Jonah who goes east of the city and he just sits there and whines. It's this internal issue of the heart, isn't it? Sometimes our anger shows itself in a lashing out with words, as Jonah does towards God. You know, imprecatory prayers, they are in the Bible, but if we find that we're always praying for the judgment of our enemies, it probably indicates that we're quite angry. 
Of course, the antidote, the cure for anger is God's grace and the atoning work of Christ. The grace of God empowers us to put to death this deed of the flesh and to walk in newness of life. And so, even as I trust that the Lord is actually going to expose our sins this morning, that's what he intends to do in this passage, is expose and awaken us to all the ways in which we're entitled, we feel like we have the right, we question God's goodness, we look down on others when God shows them mercy. All these things are cured by the grace of God. You see, God, he, what he does here in this final episode is he confronts Jonah, the judge. Jonah, the fiery prophet. You know, you talk about a person, he's a fiery coach, he's a fiery player player he's a fiery preacher you know in a good sense lots of passion but Jonah he's a fiery prophet he's an angry man because of what God has done in Nineveh and God brings about this change or seeks to bring about this change in Jonah's own heart through his own words of confrontation that's what we have here is God confronting Jonah it's a direct confrontation but he uses it in the form of some thought-provoking questions as well as an object lesson that Jonah really feels. And as it is at the case, God's word causes us to reflect on our own selves, our own entitlements, our, our minds, on how our mind's horizon is filled with all sorts of things but gratitude for God's grace towards us. And so to help us, we're going to look at these questions. There's three of them there that you see in the text. In verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? Then down in verse 9, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And then look down there at verse 11 with this final question, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? And so by asking these questions, God strategically puts them here for Jonah and for us today to expose our own Jonah-like tendencies to shine the spotlight once again on all the abundance of God's mercy towards sinners, to you, to me. And he does this that we might turn from anger and turn to actually celebrate God's grace and extend compassion even to our enemies. That's what God intends to do among us, I believe, here this morning in this passage through his word. So we're going to consider these questions together and then we're going to close our time together just recounting. We're going to recount and we're going to celebrate God's grace together. So the first question, and the first two are really the same kind of question in a sense, do we do well to be angry? Do we do well to be angry? Well you see they're coming off the heels of chapter three, that great revival that happened in Nineveh, right? Through the preaching of the word, revival breaks out, there's repentance, there's turning towards the Lord, there's this new posture. And you'd think that a prophet of God would be celebrating, rejoicing. And yet, there's this sad and somewhat surprising end to the book of Jonah. Jonah, the running prophet, who was turned the praying prophet in the belly of the fish, turned the preaching prophet, is now the angry prophet burning with anger towards God for sparing these wicked Ninevites. 
You see, Jonah here was actually standing in judgment over God, or, or so he thought. He was accusing God of doing something wrong. You see that there in verse 1, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Literally, if we translate it literally, it says, but it was evil to Jonah, exceedingly evil, and he burned with anger. What was evil? God's actions in saving Nineveh, in turning from judgment and sparing them. In Jonah's view, in Jonah's estimation, he appraised God as doing something wrong. I mean, it's an amazing thing. God, you've done wrong. You did wrong in showing mercy to the Ninevites. And so what we see here is that anger and judgmentalism are like conjoined twins. Anger and judgmentalism, they go together. And so Jonah is actually doing the exact opposite that Jesus will later teach in Matthew chapter 7. That famous passage, often butchered, Matthew 7, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, Jonah, Jonah is dealing with all the specks but he's not dealing with his own sin. He's judgmental. And in particular, we see, as I said, he's judgmental towards the Lord. He's accusing God of doing wrong. You see, in Jonah's judgment, what we're going to see is that what he does is he's like an appraiser. I remember uh, growing up, uh, when, I, when I come back from basketball practice in junior high and high school, sometimes late in the evenings, I'd come home, and my mom would be watching this show called The Antiques Roadshow. Antiques Roadshow. And what do you do? Well, they have all these people would bring their artifacts, you know, something that they found in their grandma's attic or something, and they'd bring it there. And what would happen is that these experts would appraise the value of this object, you know, a painting. Oh, it's valued at $30,000. Now, I'm always interested to know how accurate those were. You know, some of the people, maybe they were quite disappointed in the end of the day, but there's this appraisal happening. And we see the same thing with Jonah. What he's doing is he's appraising God's actions. He's assigning a value to them and says, you've done evil. You've done evil. You've done wrong. You've done something unjust in sparing these wicked Ninevites and seemingly abandoning your people. Because Jonah knows, remember, Jonah knows that Nineveh, or the Assyrians rather, are going to come and they're going to take out Israel here in a few years. So in Jonah's mind, he's thinking, yeah, you spare these people, and it seems like you've abandoned your own covenant people. But Jonah here, as a judge or as an appraiser, what he's doing is he's under-appraising God's right and over-appraising his own. And he also under-appraises God's abundant provisions towards him. He under-appraises that value, and he over-appraises the value of a plant and his own comfort over the lives of these 120,000 people and even the cattle in Nineveh. 
I imagine the prophet Jeremiah, you know, coming along, saying to Jonah, what's wrong with you, bozo? I mean, all I get is people that want to kill me. Like you got an entire city that turned to the Lord. You know, some of you maybe have seen that R.C. Sproul clip. What's wrong with you people? Right? Now, maybe that's actually a little too optimistic a view of Jeremiah. Because as I said, we can all kind of stand in judgment over Jonah. But Jonah really, as we've seen all the way along, he's a mirror. You look at Jonah, what do you see? You see so much of yourself. Right? You see so much of yourself. As Israel looked at Jonah, they were to see, oh yeah, we've been ungrateful to the Lord for his grace towards us. See, Jonah's a mirror. And as we look at Jonah, we see our own tendencies to anger, our own entitlement mentality, our own incorrect evaluations of God's deeds and God's works, our own incorrect evaluations of what's most important, and even our own bent towards wanting judgment, judgment for all those people, but mercy for us. See, we need to pull the log from our own eye first, and that's what God does in effect. He's using this question to provoke some thoughtful self-reflection in Jonah, and he's going to give Jonah an object lesson that we're going to look at here in a few moments. See, it's often the case, friends, that the root of sinful anger is a person who stands very confident in their own evaluation of everything. Right? Oh yeah, that's right, that's wrong, because that's essentially what anger is. It's an evaluation, it's a judgment that says, that's wrong, right? You've done wrong to me, and I demand that you make it right. And if you don't make it right, I'm angry. Right? So at the root of sinful anger is this confident evaluation. It's almost this kind of enlightenment mentality that we can have. And at times, we can even think that we know better than God. God, you've, you didn't give me the right spouse. You didn't give me the right career. God, why did you put me in this church with all these people? These pastors. Right? We can think that if we were somehow in charge, we would make better decisions. That somehow our barometer of justice is better than God's. And God's exposing, no, 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 Jonah. You have far too high an estimation of your own rights and far too low an estimation of mine. So in his anger, Jonah prays. You see that there in verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord. Now that's at least maybe we could say better than what he did in chapter 1 when he ran. Prayer is the right response. When you're angry, friends, pray. Go to the Lord. I'm feeling angry. Your instinct, prayer right? But not this kind of prayer. This isn't a model prayer of faith. It's not the model prayer of a humble child. It's not that the Lord is opposed to our questions, our laments. We just sang about lamenting. There's a proper place where we can cry out to the Lord, you know, why do the wicked prosper? But the Lord does not tolerate our accusations towards him in prayer. That's what Jonah's doing. He's accusing the Lord. He's accusing the Lord. In chapter 2, Jonah prays to the Lord in his distress. 
Now Jonah prays to the Lord in his displeasure, and notice, in his displeasure, he even starts to justify his own sin. You see that there? Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. It tells us right here why Jonah did what he did in chapter 1, because going on in his heart, he says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, I knew it. He gave, you, he gave God the I told you so treatment. I, I told you so. I knew that you would do that. I knew you would do it. I knew you would spare these wicked Ninevites because that's who you are. It's an amazing thing and it's, and it's something to be alert to that when you start to justify previous sins, anger is often crouching at the door. Or maybe it's already there, eating away at you. Jonah says, oh, that's why I did what I did. He's basically trying to justify his previous actions. And yet his reasoning here is absolutely ridiculous. He's afraid that God would show mercy to the Ninevites. See, Jonah's upset because of God meeting his expectations. It's actually quite interesting. Oftentimes, we're upset when somebody doesn't meet our expectations. I expect you to be here at this time. You know, kids, I expect you to sit here and eat. No, I'm going to go wander off, do my own thing. I'm angry, right? But Jonah's actually angry with God because God met his expectations. But the problem was, is Jonah did not desire God to show mercy to Nineveh. See, it's the same thing. We've got lots of people here who, including myself, are, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we'll call them theology nerds. Right? Lots of knowledge, and it's good. It's good to know. You see there, Jonah knew. Jonah was a good theologian. He had the facts right. We saw in chapter 2, Jonah, he had an awareness of the Psalms. He was echoing the Psalm language. Now we see Jonah knows the Torah, the law. He knew Exodus 34, this really key passage, this declaration, God's own definition of himself. What does he say? That you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Lots of people know the truth, but the issue is, as James says, we're deceiving ourselves if we aren't doers of the word. Jonah knew the facts, but it actually hadn't really gripped him as it ought to. So God's working on Jonah to get a hold of him, to expose his anger and awaken him to gratitude. I love what uh, Spurgeon said of Jonah. He said he was not lacking in backbone, but he was lacking in heart. Jonah was not lacking in backbone. He had lots of strong convictions about right and wrong. This is black and white. But he lacked in heart, and in particular, a heart of compassion for even his enemies. Friends, as I said, Jonah's angry here because God met his expectations. 
we can often be angry not only because we judge someone, maybe even God for having doing wrong in our estimation, but also because we just don't get our own way. Jonah's not getting his way. He's not getting his way right now. I want, I deserve, and if I don't get, I'm going to let you know, either with my words or my actions, or maybe I'll just go sit and isolate myself and give you the cold shoulder for the rest of the day. Happens all the time. I think it's helpful just as we consider then God's own nature revealed right here to ask ourselves, where is our life out of step with the character of God displayed here? God is gracious. Grace, that undeserved favor. He extends undeserved favor, gives undeserved blessings. So who is it that you're refusing to extend undeserved favor towards? Undeserved favor. Yeah, but that they did this or that. Yeah, undeserved favor. Children, spouse, a boss. God is merciful, we see, though. God is also merciful. What it means to be merciful is that he shows compassion by providing abundantly over and, be, over and above what people deserve. That's mercy. It's the act of gladly providing above and beyond for those who don't deserve it. So are you providing abundantly even for the needs of your own household? Are you providing abundantly in your service to the church? Are you lavish with your gifts? Generous. God is slow to anger, we see there. God is slow to anger. How explosive have you been lately? Do you have a long fuse or a short one? It's interesting the contrast here between Jonah, who is really quick to anger, and God, who it says is literally long of nose. Long of nose. You know, when you get angry, your nose gets all burning, right? It's, it's literally describing God as having a long fuse. He's patient. Consider God's patience towards you and then bear with the inconsistencies, even the stubbornness and the slowness of those around you. God is abounding in steadfast love. The word here is a common word used all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, chesed. It describes God's loyal covenant love for his people. In other words, God doesn't break covenants. He makes them, he keeps them. His yes is his yes and his no is his no. So, are you keeping covenant? Are you keeping covenant, husband? Are you keeping covenant, wife? With your eyes, with your thoughts, with your actions, are you keeping covenant as a gospel partner here? Are you keeping covenant with your boss? I mean, that's, that's actually something that Christians need to think about. You've actually made, you've entered into a contractual obligation with your employer. Honor them. Honor them. It's an imitation of God who keeps and abounds in steadfast love. And God relents from disaster. Is it that you're still keeping tabs of past sins? Or do you leave vengeance to the Lord? And are you willing and eager, in fact, to forgive as God in Christ forgave you? 
It's good for us to consider these things because we are called to be imitators of God. To be imitators of God. This is who God is. And by God's grace, He is making us more and more like this. But I think these questions, these questions help us think about it. Now Jonah's anger really bubbles to the surface. The only request that he makes in this prayer is in verse 3, and it's a request for God to take his life. And he actually asks that of God two times. You see that in verse 3 and then down in verse 8. And you'll notice once again, Jonah's in the appraisal business. But as we've seen, you know, if you're going to go get an appraisal in your house, don't get Jonah, because his, his evaluations are not right. They're not right. Because he says, it is better. That's a, that's a judgment term, an evaluation term. It is better for me to die than to live. Jonah seems to be pretty sure of what the best course of action is for God and for his own life. In this case, he thinks God should just take him out. He's kind of handing in his resignation papers. And again, we see this stark contrast then between Jonah and God. Jonah, he doesn't value his life as he ought to. He doesn't value the lives and souls of the Ninevites. But what a contrast with God who values life. He values life. As he says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that he's not willing that people perish, but that sinners would repent. Now, I want to stop here for a moment and say something on this because it relates to one of the most tragic effects of the fall. And it's that that people can get to a point where they literally have no will to live and sometimes they take their own lives. We've we got to deal with these difficult things when they come up in the text. And I want to hand, handle this with, with consideration because some of you have been really hurt by this kind of thinking. And I, I don't want to have a simplistic diagnosis to say this is why people do what they do in every situation. Sin is far too deep. People are far too complex to just give kind of simplistic answers to everything in life. But I do want to say at least this much. And the first is this. Anger is often at the root of why people desire to end their lives. Often. They are angry at others for not coming through for them. Maybe they're angry at God. They're angry at God. And if you're angry this morning, if you're angry, then I want you to hear this challenge to turn from your anger and to rejoice in all the ways that God has been gracious to you, even in giving you life. That's more than you deserve. The second is this, to know that your life is valuable, both to others and to God. It's valuable. You are one of His creatures, made in His image for His glory. He made you for a purpose. You are of far more value than the plants and animals, as God makes very clear at the end of the book of Jonah here. And if you're a Christian, you're doubly valued. Not just as a creature made in his image, but as a child adopted by Christ. And the, and the third just encouragement that I'd say is, if, if you're thinking in these categories, if, if these things are kind of swirling around your mind, 
then please talk to somebody. This is not kind of just the radio ad, you know, the canned radio ad version. I mean this sincerely. Talk to somebody. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a friend, a parent. This is important stuff. This is important stuff. Because as we see here, God values life. Now I know it's difficult to think on these things, but as I said, the text sometimes forces us to address these tough topics. But notice once again what happens. God actually doesn't answer Jonah's request. It's it's an account of God's grace to Jonah. You know, you and I, as I said multiple times, we'd be like, okay, Jonah, if you want it, get out of here. Right? That's how, that's how we often respond. But God, his grace shines through once again. He's not done with Jonah. But as a patient father, he now asks Jonah this question to really get to the root. Do you, have, do, you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Now, I think actually God's response here, the way he deals with Jonah, is actually pretty instructive for us as we think of, you know, our, our care and counsel to one another. God is the wonderful counselor. He's a wonderful counselor, and I think even his method here of, of, of dealing with conflicts and anger is instructive. It's instructive for us. How do we usually respond to someone who's angry? With more anger, right? Anger, anger, back and forth. But notice how God deals with it. He doesn't ignore the issue. He actually addresses the issue square on. He identifies Jonah's issue clearly. Jonah is angry. Jonah is angry. It's a sin. He's not sidestepping it, but what he does, notice the method, is he uses a question. He uses a question. It's often the case that questions are far more profitable at provoking thoughtful self-reflection than just accusations. Uh, When people get their hackles up, it's often because you just you know, slamming him with more. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. And of course, there's a time for that. Jesus does it. God does it. There's commands. There's prohibitions. But notice, a, a well-thought-through question is actually a very effective counseling tool. It's a very effective counseling tool because what it does is that it's one of the means that God uses to bring people to a greater self-awareness of their own sin. And then, drives him to Christ. Now, apparently, Jonah doesn't think much on this question because next we find Jonah sitting east of the city, sulking. And so we're reminded here just basically that sanctification is a slow process, right? You can ask questions. You can have a person in your counseling office or you can have them, you know, across the coffee table from you. And it's like, man, I've asked questions, I've given them the Bible verses, I've given them some counsel, and they don't respond. But again, God is patient. He's patient with Jonah. He's patient with you and me. But Jonah here, he just kind of puts it out of his mind. There's no response other than to go, as it says, go out of the city and sit to the east there in verse 5. And he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. But while Jonah sits there and stews east of the city, the Lord gives him an object lesson. What he does is he appoints a plant, a worm, and a fierce 
wind to teach Jonah a lesson in grace and to expose his hypocrisy. We've seen that same word used before. You see it there used three times. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant, right? And he also appointed, in verse 7, a worm. And then in verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. God's appointments. We see God as the one who's in control of all things. As we've seen, then, the book of Jonah really can be summarized as an exhibition of God's might and his mercy. And the union of the two. God's might as the sovereign creator Lord and his mercy as the redeemer. And that's an immensely comforting truth that God is both mighty and merciful. If God is just mighty and not merciful, then we just cower in fear. Right? Islam, they got, they got a mighty God, so to speak, but he ain't merciful. You can't count on him. But God is mighty and merciful. And so we can run to him. And he does us good. He continues to do us good. And in his might and his mercy, God then appoints these agents with a specific design to expose Jonah's sin, to erode his anger, and to provoke then a heart of gratitude that turns from anger to worship, that turns from being compassionless to compassionate towards Nineveh. And so first, he appoints this plant to grow up and to be a shade over him. You can imagine sitting out in the desert, how uncomfortable it will be. You know, we, we get heat in the summer, but it's nothing like sitting out in the middle of a desert, you know, where it's 120 degrees out there, um, and the sun's just beating down on your head, right? Maybe Jonah was a little bit like me, you know, lacking some extra protection on the top. It's, a, it's, it's burning hot out there, so Jonah makes this kind of makeshift hut for himself. But the Lord gives above and beyond even what Jonah did for himself. He, he goes and he makes this plant to grow up as shade over his head. And so you see here that the, it says to save him from his discomfort. You see that there in verse 6. To be shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. The word for discomfort is the same word that we can translate to save him from his disaster or to save him from his evil. And I think there's actually a double meaning going on here. God appoints both this plant to save Jonah and give him relief from his physical discomfort. At the same time, he appoints this plant is going to be something that God is going to use to save Jonah from his own evil, ungrateful heart. See, God cares about the physical and the spiritual well-being of children, and he can appoint these various means, even using nature, to get us, get our attention, to get a hold of us. God was being truly merciful. It wasn't just that God was just trying to teach Jonah a lesson. He was actually being kind to Jonah. But he also had in mind, Jonah, I am going to use this to erode your sin and to bring you to an awareness of all that you have by grace. And of course, Jonah, he's exceedingly glad, which contrasts then with his exceeding displeasure back in verse 1. He was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but then in verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And as is often the case, there's kind of trial upon trial. It just sort of piles on. 
So you see in verse 8, And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And then God asked him that question again. Right? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And this time, Jonah doesn't stay quiet. He snaps back and says, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. You want an answer, God? There's my answer. I have the right to be angry. Now, it might not seem like it, as is often the case for us, but actually the worm and the wind are also evidences of God's grace towards Jonah. After all, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and no discipline, discipline is enjoyable for the moment. It's not pleasant for the moment. But later on, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God is disciplining Jonah. And it's often the case in that as we look back on the trials of life, we can see, oh yeah, they were painful. They were real hard experiences. And sometimes there was people that did wrong to us. And that, we can say, is truly wrong. And yet, we see, oh yeah, even when the Lord lets us feel the heat for a little bit, it's actually his goodness to us. It's actually a sign that he cares. It's a sign that he cares for Jonah. If he didn't care, he would have just got rid of Jonah and just left him be. Jonah, you know, use your sin. Go devour yourself with your own sin. But God cares about his people. And he appoints not only the plant and the shade to give relief, and he does. He blesses us far more than we deserve, but he also uses then the trials of life, the deprivations. They too are appointed by God to expose sin and even cultivate and create within us greater Christ-likeness. So you see here, God's designs are never pointless. They're never pointless. They have a purpose. Of course, God's design here was to expose Jonah's hypocrisy and his sense of entitlement. And really what we see here is a great comparison between Jonah and the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, don't we? You remember the parable of the prodigal son? The son demands to have the father's inheritance. He goes and wastes it on all sorts of sinful things. He's lazy, gluttonous, sexually immoral. And then, it says, comes to his senses. The father runs and drapes him in the cloak and says, let's have a feast, let's party, let's, have, let's kill the fattened calf. My son has returned home. And the point of the parable is actually not so much about the, par- the prodigal son who runs and who comes back. It's actually about the incorrect response of the older brother who does exactly what Jonah does. Why does he get it? I've been here this whole time, right? I've been faithful to you this whole time. And then God reminds him, no, no, but I've given you everything already. See, Jonah's got this kind of older brother mentality, which is an entitlement mentality. An entitlement. He thinks that somehow he deserves God's favor. When in fact, the opposite is the case. Grace is, by its very nature, undeserved favor. We are all debtors to grace. Every minute of our lives 
is owing to grace. And any good thing we experience is because God is gracious and merciful. And as I said, even the trials as God's children are part of his wise designs for us. Jonah, it seems to be that God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, do you really have a right to be angry with me for killing this plant and you experiencing a bit of the heat here for a bit? After all, that's what you want for Nineveh, don't you? You really want that? I'm giving you a bit of a taste of your own medicine, so to speak. Jonah, I could have struck you dead a thousand times, and I would have been fully justified in doing so. But I spared you. I brought up your life from the pit. I saved you from, from the sea and, and appointed this agent of deliverance in the fish. I've given you a successful ministry, a ministry that many of the prophets never saw. Stop whining, Jonah. Stop it. Stop thinking that you deserve anything from me. You don't. I am gracious and merciful to you, and that is why you are where you are right now. Do you have a right to be angry for the plant? Jonah seems to think so. As I said, he snaps back, but as is the case, God actually gets the last word here. God always gets the last word. And his last word comes in the form of this second question. You see it there in verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The question is, should I not pity the wicked? See, it's an interesting question that actually forces us to consider God's rights. It forces us to consider God's entitlements. Jonah thinks he's entitled to it, but really what we see here is actually God's getting at, I'm the one that's entitled to do as I will. I'm the one that's entitled. See, part of what God is communicating to Jonah by the plant and the worm and the wind is that he has authority over his creatures to do with them as he pleases. He can appoint and raise up a plant for a day and knock it down. He can bring a worm. He can bring a wind. And he can choose to rescue a drowning prophet and relent from disaster when a people repent. See, Jonah is learning the lesson that God taught Moses earlier. And later, the Apostle Paul would teach to the Gentile believers in Rome in Romans chapter 9, 15. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Should I not pity Nineveh? The answer to that should be, You can do as you please, God. This is your world. We're your creatures. Right? You're the potter. We're the clay. You're the Lord. We're the servants. See, Jonah is being confronted then with God's entitlement. And God willed to show mercy to repenting Nineveh just as he willed to snatch Jonah from the sea. Both of them are monuments of mercy. 
But in, in addition to reminding us then of God's entitlements, the question is also designed to expose another one of Jonah's erroneous judgments. That is that he values this plant in his own personal relief above the eternal destiny, not only of these people, but of an entire bunch of cattle. Jonah was more angry about a plant dying, a plant that he did not create, existed for one day, than he is about 120,000 people created in the image of God who were destined for eternal destruction. People who were morally confused. I think that's what's being communicated there. They don't know their right hand from their left. Some people will say it's the kids. I think it's a description of the entire city. They were in a complete state of moral confusion. They were morally darkened in their understanding. They didn't know their right hand from their left, and we live in the same kind of world today, don't we? People don't literally know, or at least they don't want to acknowledge, the difference between a boy and a girl, right? They can look at an ultrasound on a screen and say, yeah, if the mom wants to, she can get rid of it. We live in the same kind of day of mass moral confusion. It's not talking about Nineveh's moral innocence. They were not morally innocent. They were morally confused. They were morally rebellious. And what about the cattle? It's kind of a strange way to end, isn't it? Why is he talking about cows? Right? Well, it seems to be that God is pointing out Jonah's own inconsistencies here. He says, Jonah, you pity the plant. And if you pity the plant, based on that same reasoning, you should want me to actually spare this city if only for the reason of saving these cattle. If only for the reason of saving these livestock. Because actually, even the livestock are far more valuable than this you know, plant. See, it's showing that Jonah's values and virtues are way off from God's. And the question then gets at us too, or not to. Do we care more about people or things? Very simply, do we care more about people or things? Is it the eternal souls of people that really grips us? It's not that God doesn't care about plants and animals. The new creation will be full of them. But the point here is that people are the most valuable of them all. They are creatures made in His image with eternal destinies at stake. And so we ought to care most for their eternal well-being. Friends, if we look to the world to help us make evaluations and to triage what's most important, where we ought to be prioritizing our time and our money and all sorts of things, we're going to be messed up because, as I, say, as I said, you look out there and it's, a, it's mass confusion. It's upside down. Paul talks about it being suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, doing what is unnatural. You know, We can summarize the spirit of the age with that meme that's going around. What is a woman? I'm not a biologist. Right? But God here, he is the one that is showing us what we ought to value. And that is the eternal destinies of sinners from the nations. From the nations. The salvation of morally darkened, confused, rebellious people is the most important work that God is about in this world right now because this brings greatest glory to him. It brings great glory for God to save Ninevites because that's only something he can do.
See, Jesus, I was thinking of the worm and reminded of what Jesus said, that the lost, those who are perishing, will exist in a place of conscious torment. In Mark 9, 48, he says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jonah felt just a little bit, a little bit of that. And it ought to stoke his compassion and desire to see more Ninevites saved. Is this you? Do you love the lost among the nations? Do you love them? Do you love those who are perishing? I mean, it's back to the basics, isn't it? Would you rejoice if God saved your worst enemy? You know, pick him out. Pick out your whatever tyrannical politician or your boss, your ex-spouse. Who is it that you really hate? Think, would I celebrate? And do I want that person? Do I want to be standing next to them in heaven? That's the kind of heart that God desires for his people to have because that's his heart. Now, as you see there, the book really, it ends with a question, but there's also a question about Jonah. The question is, how does he respond? We don't know. We don't know. And that's by design because God intends for this book to be one that we reflect upon for ourselves and ask, are we responding properly to God's grace towards us? Do you do well to be angry? The answer, of course, is no. We have no right to be angry, but we have every reason to celebrate God's kindness to us and to show compassion to others, even our enemies. See, it's hard for you to be angry when your mind is filled with reminders about how God has been good to you. Thinking of Mother's Day today, it just came to my mind yesterday evening to honor my mom to honor my mom and one of the ways that she taught us as boys when we were grumpy, angry, disobedient children. Very simple exercise that I want us to do as we conclude this morning is to celebrate God's grace towards us by counting our blessings. I want to do that. Just think very practically about that. It's interesting, Jonah here, you see that he was sitting in a booth east of the city. The word there is the same word used to describe the booths that Israel sat in, that God provided for them when he brought them out of Egypt, and the booths that they were to make every year for the Feast of Booths. You can read about that in Leviticus 23. God tells them, you go make these booths, sit in them, remember my gracious provision and my presence with you as your people. I brought you out and I kept you. I didn't abandon you. I'm your God. See, these booths were actually meant to be places where God's people celebrated God's grace. They remembered all of his abundant mercies. But Jonah's doing the opposite, isn't he? He's sulking. He's pouting. So this morning, I want us to sit in the booze, as it were, and to celebrate. To celebrate. Now, I think that this will help erode the anger that maybe is welling up, our entitlements, our lack of compassion, and it will promote, then, the true worship of God. Let's just start very practically. Thinking of the shade. Do we have a roof over our head? Well, we do. Right? 
We got a roof over it. The fact that we have a building, friends, a church building, is actually far more than we deserve. The fact that you have a house is far more than you deserve. If you're here today, God has given you another day of life, another day to turn to him. He spared your life. You're not, if you're outside of Christ, he's been gracious to you. Look at the kids in the room. Look at them all. Look at the kids. Another generation that are being trained in the truth. Children are a blessing from the Lord. They're a gracious gift. Maybe parents, you don't think that at 3 a.m. when your kid's squawking for water. As you can tell, I tell what I'm doing at 3 a.m. But it's a kindness of the Lord. And we've had the privilege of seeing some of our own youth baptized over the last couple of years. On this Mother's Day, consider the moms here, those who nurture life. Look at all the young moms. Look at the older moms who continue to pour their lives into others, those who give themselves. It's a gift. Friends, praise God that we haven't devoured one another. We've gone through two years of worm and wind. Two years of heat. And when the heat comes, that's when the friction starts. And there was friction. There was tension. But I see more than one person in here this morning. There's more than one. That's not owing to anything that we deserve, anything that we did on our own. That is a mercy of God. That we are still here, worshiping Christ together. Praise God for his protection of our sister Katie. His provision for a kidney. For protection of our brother Glenn. For his provisions for many of you, for jobs. I mean, we didn't have a mass amount of people lose jobs and had to leave. There wasn't a mass exodus. Not every church is like that. Think of our budget. God provided for us abundantly last year, far above even what we budgeted. Again, not every church is in that same situation. We don't deserve it. That's a kindness of the Lord. It's above and beyond what we deserve. And praise God that he loves us to discipline us. As I said, the worm and the wind. And he's going to continue to do so. And it's forged, I believe, as I look around and as I talk to people, even as it exposed their own sins, it also forged, I think, a stronger faith, a hope in future glory, and a love for one another. We could go on for hours. It's a good exercise. When you're angry, when you're questioning God's ways, it's good to sit and think of these things. Think of all that you have received in view of what you deserve. And of course, all these things are over and above this multitude of spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings that every Christian enjoys. Spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's amazing as we think of contrasts. And Jonah really is a contrast. His heart contrasts with God's heart for people. There's another man that his heart contrasts with, and his actions contrast with, and his prayers contrast with. And of course, it's the one that we've seen through and through, the one better than Jonah. The one better than Jonah. Jonah sits 
east of the city here to go pout, but the one better than Jonah, he goes east of the city not to sit and pout, not to wait for his enemies to burn, but to hang on a cross that they might live. Jonah asked God to take his life because he was fed up with these people. Jesus lays down his life that we might live. That our sins would be forgiven, wiped away. That we would stand before God justified with an inheritance given to us. On the cross, Luke tells us that Jesus, looking out on those who were hurling insults at him, his enemies, he cried out in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't know their right hand from their left. And yet he wasn't calling for their condemnation, but he was actually accomplishing their salvation. Right there. See, God owes us nothing, and by his own free grace, he shows us mercy and forgives us. And on the cross, not only does Christ purchase forgiveness, but it says in 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. That includes our anger. And live to righteousness. He enables you now to walk in newness of life. And he calls you to that. Friends, and all of this is completely outside of what you deserve. We deserve the seaweed wrapped around our neck, choking us for eternity. But God not only raises our life, but now he gives us, even by the Spirit, an ability to walk in newness of life. Do we have a right to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry with God? None. None whatsoever. Does God do well to pity the wicked? Even us? Yes. Yes, he does, but only because Christ has died. And so he can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so friends, as we've seen through Jonah, our sins, they are many, many sins. But his mercy is more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your exceedingly deep and wide mercy shown towards us. We ask, Lord, that you would erode our anger. Remind us that this is not who we are. We are no longer dead in our sins. We are no longer slaves to these things. But Christ has given himself that we might walk in newness of life. And thank you, Lord, for forgiving us of our sins. That we stand before you accepted. Accepted because Jesus loved his enemies even to the point of death on a cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing about God's mercy towards us. We're all sinners, but Christ's mercy is more. And there is forgiveness of sins and an ability and a power to walk in newness of life through Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with this as our benediction from Romans 11. After going through, talking about God's rights and entitlements, Paul says, Oh, the depths 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed.